In the justice system, crimes are investigated and tried by the government with two distinct sides. The prosecution, which represents the state, and the defense, who represents the accused. During his 60-year career, attorney Mike Fowler has been on the front lines of both sides. These are his stories. I'm Lamar White Jr. of the Bayou Brief, and on this episode of Combat in the Courtroom, Mike Fowler takes on the controversial former New Orleans DA, Harry Connick Sr. As told in his book, From the Bronx to the Bayou, Mike was recruited to represent Curtis Kyles, a man whose murder conviction was overturned by the United States Supreme Court in a landmark case. It's 1995, and Michael Jordan has rejoined the Chicago Bulls, donning number 45 after a stint as a baseball player. Mike Fowler has just, quote, escaped from Dallas after defending a series of cases in the savings and loan scandal and opened a new firm with Randall Smith, Smith and Fowler. We had a, an office warming party at the end of March of 1995. And among the people who were there was Denny LaBeouf, who used to work for me, who now is very involved in death penalty litigation. He was involved with the Innocent Project and had a, an organization, the Death Penalty Organization. I'd had a few drinks. I hadn't seen Denny in several years. She came, she had once worked for me for a couple of years. She told me about this case, that it was in the Supreme Court. She was optimistic of it getting reversed. Would I be interested if it did get reversed in retrying it? She told me a little bit about it. It was a case in which the client had spent 14 years in Angola, having convicted of the murder of a Dolores Dye, D-Y-E in the parking lot of the Schwegman supermarket back in 1984. And this is now 12 years later, some likelihood that there'll be another retrial. I was going off to Dallas for a few days. I had some business to wrap up there. And I said, you know, Denny, call me when I'll call you. When I get back to town, we can discuss it. Mike would follow up with Denny. When she told me a little bit more about the case, she said the prime government witness in the case, individual, was a, the homicide detective was a man named John Dillman. My ears perked up. John Dillman was the homicide detective in the Mintz case. And the idea of getting another crack at Dillman, which I had successfully done in Mintz, appealed to me. And I said, oh, if I'd do this for nothing just to get another crack at Dillman. And then he took me up on my offer. And that's how I got involved in the case. On April 19, 1995, the United States Supreme Court ruled in favor of Curtis Kyles. The decision was a nuanced one. The circuit courts had conflicting opinions. And thus, the Supreme Court needed to clarify things once and for all. It's worth noting this was a split decision, with Justice Souter writing for the majority and Justice Scalia writing for the dissent. This case created a materiality standard, which says a conviction should be overturned if suppressed evidence would have resulted in a different outcome. Justice Souter wrote for the majority, quote, the evidence must be considered in whole, not piece by piece, end quote. Initially, this decision was seen as a game-changing victory among the criminal defense bar and legal scholars. 
at least not those in the Antonin Scalia Clarence Thomas fan club, known as the Federalist Society. Now with a trial to prepare for, Mike goes to see Curtis. I spent some time with him, but truth of the matter, the trial preparation had less to do with him and more to do with what had gone on in the earlier trials. At the first trial, the defendants, defense attorneys, unsuccessfully had tried to suggest it was not Curtis who killed Dolores Die, but a man named Beanie. His full name was Joe Wallace or Joseph Wallace. At that first trial, there was some indication, but very little hard evidence that could really support the defense position that Beanie had done it. Unbeknownst to them, but which was clear from the Supreme Court opinion, evidence that pointed to Beanie's culpability had been hidden from defense, and there was some five or six eyewitnesses who testified whose testimony was very suspect. Joseph Harry Fowler Connick Jr., best known for his breakthrough role in Independence Day, is the son of Joseph Harry Fowler Connick Sr. But in the city of New Orleans, if you say Harry Connick, you're probably talking about the old man. In 1973, Harry Connick Sr. became the district attorney of Orleans Parish, defeating incumbent Jim Garrison, the zealous JFK conspiracy theorist, later immortalized in the Oscar award-winning Oliver Stone film. Whereas Junior is a celebrated and beloved entertainer and New Orleans icon, Senior, while sharing his son's vocal talents, he was nicknamed the singing district attorney, does not perform as well with audiences. During his 30-year career as Orleans Parish DA, Harry Connick Senior was constantly making news. According to the Innocence Project, 36 men convicted in Orleans Parish during Connick's 30-year tenure as DA have made allegations of prosecutorial misconduct, and 19 have had their sentences overturned or reduced as a result. No other district attorney in the nation has been cited for as many Brady violations. There's a lot to say about Harry Connick Sr., and Curtis Kyles is just one episode in an epic career. There's a whole segment on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Check it out. This time, the prosecution's case would be the same as it was in 1984, relying on eyewitnesses and evidence collected by Detective John Dillman. It was imperative to be able to establish that the eyewitness testimony was defective in some way, and then also to be able to truly establish a better case of Beanie being the perpetrator of the murder. And we had a lot to go on once we did some preparation for that trial. The inconsistent witness statements would be where Mike began to investigate. There were a great deal of inconsistencies in the description of the perpetrator in their statements given to the police, which were never revealed to defense counsel. But more significantly, almost immediately after the event, each of the eyewitnesses was called down to police headquarters by John Dillman and had them look at a photo ID. And it was our position that the photo identifications were basically targeted identifications. A targeted identification is using techniques to lead a witness to select a preferred suspect. It can be done subliminally by presenting multiple photos of the same suspect in different lighting or using pressure tactics like pushing a witness into a yes or no. 
Mike believed techniques like these were used by Dillman. Dillman, from my perspective, was always somebody who had no real regard for what was legal, what was ethical. A woman who was one of the eyewitnesses who had been in a car passing on the highway and who had testified that she identified Curtis came forward voluntarily because she had a guilty conscience and admitted to Denny her testimony had been suborned by John Dillman. Dillman flirting with her, coming on to her, whatever you want to call it, basically convinced her, although she really was not close enough to see, agreed to testify falsely that Curtis had done it. What she testified to under oath was that to convince her to testify, he said, you know, look, the, na the name of the game is get, quote, getting another nigger off the street. That was her language. It's what she had told Denny during the course of when she had come forward. And it's what she actually testified at the trial when we put her on. The government, the state never put her on. So we were able to throw her out. Mike would look to interview more of the witnesses to Dolores Dye's murder. There was a second witness that I happened to interview. I remember sitting on a stoop, young guy, brash, white guy, and I'm talking to him, not necessarily explaining in great deal why I'm talking to him, but just listening to what he has to say about the events. And he describes how he's driving by and he hears this sound and it startled him so he ducks down below the level of the window. So he never saw anything. But at the trial, he had testified he had seen it. So bye-bye his testimony. There were still more witnesses to address when Mike's paralegal, Marie, would make a literary discovery. I had a paralegal named Marie Campbell. And in preparation of the case, she had gone out of her way to read a bunch of books that John Dillman had written after he left the force, which he had left, and was a successful writer of books about cases he handled in which, of course, he was the hero in every case. But she found a portion of that, it was called Unholy Matrimony, in which Dillman explained how you get a witness to identify an individual in a photo lineup, but suggesting to him who you want him to identify. With unholy matrimony in hand, Mike was able to ask Detective Dillman about targeted identifications from his own words. That cross-examination went like this. Detective Dillman, after you left the New Orleans police force, did you write a book called Unholy Matrimony? Did you not? I did. You stand by what you said in that book? Yes, sir. Let me read a bit of it for you. Every detective, even relatively inexperienced ones, like me, that's namely you, John Dillman, knew ways to coax a witness, to guide her, without her knowing towards the right identification. What I'm asking you to tell us, to tell this jury, is how homicide detectives would engage in this. You said you know how it's done even relatively inexperienced ones, quote-unquote. Explain it to the jury how it's done. What I meant. Explain it to the jury how it's done. 
what I meant by that particular quote was during an identification. If you in some way touched a picture, or maybe moved a picture up, try to make a, any type of suggestion. But in the book, it clearly states before and after that there are ways that you can just suggest an identification that's not that's never done. I, I wouldn't do it in this case. I, I didn't do it in the particular book. I understand you're saying it's never done. Then why is it something that's common? You said, quote, every detective, close quote. That's your words, right? Yes, that's my words. So I take it that it's something that's not intuitive, right? It's not something that people know just by virtue of being anointed homicide detectives, right? No, I think it comes from years of working with people. You said in the book, quote, relatively inexperienced ones, close quote, like you. So it had to be early in your career as a homicide detective. Fowler, you can pick those words apart. That's what's written. It's what you said. That's what I wrote. And you wrote what was true, right? Yes. Still, other evidence collected by police had been found after tips from a Joseph Beanie Wallace. Then the, the issue became Beanie. Well, it turned out Beanie was someone who knew Curtis they moved in the same circles, and Beanie had a crush on Curtis's girlfriend and would very much have liked to have some sort of relationship with her if he could get Beanie out of the way. And it turned out that it was Beanie who, on the Saturday night after the murder on Thursday, called the police to tell a Detective Miller, John Miller, that he perhaps had evidence that would help them in the killing of Dolores Dye. The reason he called Miller is he was a snitch for Miller. So they had a relationship. Unbeknownst to him, Miller made a recorded statement of what Beanie told him. That too had never been turned over. And in it, there were all sorts of inconsistencies that if you looked at it in context, pointed to Beanie to being the perpetrator of the crime. The murder occurred in the parking lot as Dolores was about to enter a car with shopping bags, and it was then that the perpetrator tried to grab her purse. She sort of resisted, and he took out a gun and shot her. Got into the car and drove off. Everybody agreed he just got into the car. Every eyewitness, nobody ever disputed that he just got in the car, and just drove off, never stopping anywhere. Well, according to Beanie, he claimed that Curtis had sold him the car, the Dolores Dye car, and that on the night of the murder on Thursday night, he had then driven Curtis back to the parking lot late at night so he could retrieve his own car. He also testified that when they went back that night, they stopped so Curtis could retrieve the purse, which Beanie claimed he threw out in a bush as he was leaving. Beanie's story conflicted with evidence collected by police. There was much about what Beanie had said that should have alerted Miller immediately. Police officers, just uniformed police officers, who were stationed at the scene of the crime that night, took it upon themselves to make a listing of every license plate that was on every car in that parking lot. 
That was done, unbeknownst to Beanie, earlier in the evening from when Beanie said he went out there to retrieve the car. Bear in mind, the only one who's ever seen in possession of Dolores Dye's car between Thursday and Monday is Beanie, who's driving it around and who admitted to changing the plates. All of this was totally ignored by the police. Beanie would be interviewed by Detective Miller the Saturday after the murder. The following evening, Beanie hung out with Curtis Kyles. Ironically, Miller, at the very time, had posted in the police headquarters a bulletin wanting Beanie for a potential involvement in the murder of a woman named Leidenheimer. Dillman never speaks to Miller. Miller never speaks to Dillman about the whole Beanie thing. The interview of Beanie occurred on Saturday. Sunday night, Beanie is at a group get-together at Curtis's house. You have a few drinks, something to eat. And there is a point in time when he is in the kitchen by himself. He tells the police in another phone call to them two things. One, that they ought to look in the trash can outside of Curtis's house, where it may be there that they would find the person questioned that the perpetrator took. They did on that Sunday night, late at night, after everybody left that party. And guess what they found in the garbage can? But the purse. The next day, when they go to arrest Curtis when he's washing his car outside his house, they pounce on him. He's arrested, put in a police car. Dillman's there, but he is involved in the search of the house. When Dillman does the search, lo and behold, what does he find under the refrigerator? The murder weapon as well. From Miller's point of view, Beanie was his snitch, and the importance of having a snitch outweighed the fact that the snitch may have been the murderer in the case. As far as Dillman was concerned, laziness took over. He could care less we were able to establish that in all likelihood it was Beanie rather than Curtis who would have committed the crime. Beanie was never called as a witness, but he was brought into the courtroom solely for identification purposes for some reason. Between the first trial and the time I get in the case, Beanie himself is murdered. During the trial, though, one new wrinkle would be presented. It wasn't enough that the Supreme Court castigated the activity of the DA's office, but they were perpetuating this same conduct in this trial. Daniels and his partner called to the stand an ex-detective named Mike Rice. Rice gets on the stand, and he did not testify at the first trials. Gets on the stand, says... He's the guy who was in the back seat of the police van that took Curtis down to the police station. And that while Curtis was there, he said to Mike Rice, I did it, but it was an accident. That's the first time we ever hear of this. I cross-examined Mike Rice. He says that I never wrote it down, but that's what was said. Did you ever talk to John Dillman? Yeah, I told Dillman about it. Okay, 
By the way, Dillman never said a word about that when he was on the stand. And I asked Rice, what did Dillman say to you when you told him? He said, oh, don't worry about that. We have enough to convict him. But he concedes that he's never heard of anyone blowing off a confession. Rife's more than even the eyewitnesses, was a cold-blooded perjurer. And the jury, I think, viewed him as such. The trial continued, and the defense would present everything Mike and his team discovered. The last witness we had put on the stand was a man named Peter Frank. Mike Daniels had been in his face cross-examining him. He was within two feet of Peter Frank's, trying to impeach his testimony for whatever it was worth. The following day, in the course of Mike Daniels' summation, he was at the point of pointing out what he thought supported the lack of credibility of Peter Frank. Well, just as he was doing so, a black man had entered the courtroom late and was working his way down the aisle, uh, standing up as he did so to take a seat next to Curtis Kyle's daughter. And Daniels must have seen it out of the side of his eye, turned around and said, there he is now, just sitting down right there next to that woman. As he's finishing his summation, Marie Campbell tells me that the daughter came up to her and said, that's not Peter Frank that sat down next to me. I then stand up and I'm dealing with the lack of credibility of any of the eyewitnesses. And then I said, you know, the most clearest example of the weakness of eyewitness identification occurred just 20 minutes ago. You remember when Mike Daniels was right in Peter Frank's face, two feet away from him as he was trying to hammer away. And today, during his summation, he spun around and pointed to Peter Franks, saying, there he is right now. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let's ask the real Peter Franks to stand up. I then asked Peter Franks to stand up, who was sitting all the way at the other side of the courtroom. Daniels virtually melted. He was six foot five and 250 pounds. Under the glare of his co-counsel, he sort of melted into his seat at that point. Jury went out and they hung. They could not reach a decision. Now, Orleans Parish District Attorney Harry Connick Sr. would have to decide whether or not to try this 11-year-old murder case again. Connick would give me an audience each time. We tried unsuccessfully after that case to get them to agree just not to go forward. They refused. They were going to retry. This would be the fourth trial. Harry Connick Sr. decided to change quarterbacks this time, moving in prosecutor Glenn Woods as lead counsel. So he brought in a favorite of his, Glenn Woods, a very attractive, fairly decent trial lawyer, somewhat lazy, egotistical to try the second case. We tried it in front of a visiting judge who was asleep, Judge Mansour from someplace around Monroe or Alexandria. The only thing significant about the second case is Glenn Woods and I virtually came to fisticuffs. I remember him one time as he left the bench after a conference intentionally bumping into me. Nothing came of it, and the judge was pretty much asleep during much of the case. And once again, there was a hung jury in this to the second trial. 
Again, Mike would go see Harry Connick Sr. Harry Connick would give us an audience, very polite, very civil, listen to what we had to say, and then simply say, no, we're still trying the case. I think Harry took it personally, what the Supreme Court had said about his office. So he wanted to sort of vindicate himself by getting a conviction. The date would be set, and Mike prepared for his third time at trial. Retrials, there's a tendency to get worse for the defendant as you go along for some reason. That's my experience. The word I had is that while we had done very well the first term in terms of the split and jury, no worse than eight to four for acquittal. And I think after the second trial, it was like seven, five. We didn't do as well. And so it worried me that after the third trial that things could get worse. Judge Robert Burns, assigned ad hoc, would preside over Curtis Kyles' fifth trial. Glenn Woods again appeared on behalf of the district attorney's office. When we were picking jury in the third retrial, we had juror questionnaires relating to their background, their potential knowledge of the case, etc. And we're interviewing these people one at a time. And a guy gets on the stand, but there was something about him that looked familiar to me. So I asked Marie Campbell, who again was acting as my paralegal in the case, give me his questionnaire. So I look at the questionnaire, and sure enough, 1984, he was a juror in the Mintz case. It didn't say the Mintz case, but it was 1984, second-degree murder case and acquittal. I then realized that what I was looking at and the guy who was sitting in the box answering questions was the jury foreman in the Mintz case. So I spent 20 seconds thinking about my ethical obligation to reveal this court, decided I don't have to. Unbeknownst to me, this potential juror, whose name was Glenn Bokeh, had already told Judge Burns that he had sat as a juror. And Judge Burns came to the conclusion I did that it didn't disqualify him. So we finished the voir dire. I tap dance on him a little bit, but that's all. And sure enough, he gets to be the juror. In fact, he gets to be the foreman again on this jury. At trial, Glenn Woods presented a new witness. This time, they chose to put on the stand someone they'd never called before, somebody who was an inmate at the same prison that Curtis was at, who claimed, even though he never had met Curtis, didn't know him, that as they were passing one another, Curtis mentioned to him that he had killed Dolores Dye. Totally fabricated, didn't bother Woods that it was obviously fabricated. They put it on, put the guy on the stand, were able to establish, most unlikely that there was any truth to it, but also we were able to establish this guy as a paranoid schizophrenic. My guess is the jury didn't believe him one bit. Again, Mike presents the defense, and again, the jury is sent to deliberate. When the jury got the case in the third trial, they were out for some time, and we hadn't heard anything from them. Finally, they come out with the key words that they're hopelessly deadlocked, and the judge declares a mistrial, and Harry Connick, immediately after it declares that they will no longer try the case. He, in effect, throws the towel in. I mean, I, I, I was sort of taken by surprise, you know, not happy, but taken by surprise. 
Not all of Mike's strategy and preparation had gone according to plan, though. Well, I'm sitting there thinking I got a guarantee one guy who's going to hold out just as he went for an acquittal in the Mintz case, which I assumed he had done, that he would go for an acquittal here. You know, he liked my performance. Well, several years later, a man named Jed Horn, who had been the editor of the Times-Picayune, decided to write a book about the Curtis Kyle's case. And in doing so, he interviewed everybody who had anything to do with it, including Glenn Bouquet. And he had interviewed him before he decides to interview me. And I remember sitting on the porch with Jed. I hadn't met him before. And he's telling me this story of having interviewed Bouquet. And it turns out Glenn Bouquet hated me. He tried to convince the Mintz jury unsuccessfully to convict Mintz, and then he even doubled that effort in an effort to try to convince the jury to convict Kyles. Saying you should not be taken in by Mike Fowler's orations to you. Well, luckily he was unsuccessful, but so much for jury selection and thinking that you have someone in your back pocket. Jury selection is a crapshoot and a crapshoot in every sense of the word. Curtis Kyles was released in 1998 after serving 14 years in prison. In restitution, the state awarded Curtis $150,000, which he got once he was freed after the third retrial. I saw him from time to time. Curtis was a very sweet guy who just had spent too much time in prison and easily fell into a drug habit and used a lot of the 150000 to support the habit, and in 2010 got rearrested and charged with the murder of a woman. He did not contact me with respect to it. He ultimately was imprisoned and has since died. Like I say, I knew Curtis simply as sort of a sweet guy whose life was wasted. If you want to know more about the saga of Curtis Kyle's, Check out the book Desire Street, A True Story of Death and Deliverance in New Orleans, by Jed Horn. After Kyles was convicted in the other case, Horn began receiving emails and letters from random strangers, accusing him of helping let a murderer go free. The truth is, though, if anyone is responsible for not prosecuting Dolores Dye's killer, it's not Mike Fowler or Jed Horn. It's Harry Connick Sr., Quote, what was certain about the Dye murder, Horn later wrote, is that incompetent and illegal tactics by prosecutors not only blew the case, they cost Mrs. Dye's survivors a chance at emotional closure, another important deliverable when jurisprudence is properly administered. You can also find more details about Curtis Kyle's in Mike's book, From the Bronx to the Bayou, available online at bronxtothebayou.com and Amazon in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. If you're in the New Orleans area, it's also available at Octavia Books and Blue Cypress Bookstore. I'm Lamar Wright Jr. of the Bayou Brief. On behalf of myself and our producer, Ben Collinsworth, thanks for listening to Combat in the Courtroom.